Welcome to episode eight of the Teaching While Learning podcast. Now that you've made your way here, I hope you're ready to dive deeper into the ESL industry and get a glance at what it has to offer. The TWL podcast is dedicated to placing you in the shoes of current and former ESL teachers by bringing you their stories, experiences, and opinions. In the first part of this season, my guests discussed how they first became interested in teaching ESL, what brought them joy, and their plans to develop themselves and grow as an educator. When looking at teaching ESL from the outside, it's easy for some to get caught up in all of the good reasons to teach. You can make an impact on other people, help learners achieve their goals, grow personally, and a whole host of other benefits. While the aforementioned items are certainly appealing and may be the deciding factor in your decision to teach, you'll also want to be aware of the areas that cause stress for new and old teachers alike. Let's explore some of those areas in our recap episode, Dressers of Teaching ESL. Whether you decide to teach overseas or online, you're bound to come in contact with another culture that is much different from yours. In many East Asian countries, families place great importance on education and also play a pivotal role in the classroom. Let's listen to Alan explain what you can do if your students' parents seem to have too much power and how you can use your talents to charm them and get them on your side. How much influence do you think parents exert over management in a school? I think a lot. Mm. Um, in kindergarten, the parents are incredibly influential. The kindergarten I worked at was very expensive. It's known for being one of the fancy kindergartens. And so the parents had incredibly high expectations and the kids were between three and five years old. So the parents are very involved. Yeah. And managing the parents and having a good relationship with the parents can make or break your job. If the parents are unhappy with you or the management is unhappy with you, it makes your job far more difficult. And how do you how do you manage expectations of parents? You have to speak to them and you have to charm them. Mm. You have to be open to ha- making them laugh and making them like you. That's what you want. You want the parents to like you. So if the parents come and pick up their kids, you've got to say hello and you've got to, you've got to say a nice goodbye to their kid. You've got to in the parents' days, you need to dress up nicely and be well, well groomed, right? So charming the parents and and making the parents like you is massively influential to how much you'll enjoy your job and how much pressure you'll experience. Did management give you, um, I guess, the tools, the resources, uh, the confidence to teach the kids? so that parents were happy with what they were coming home or with what they were um, um, using outside of the classroom? Yes, I think so. And I think there was uh, there was something that I personally used a lot, which uh, the parents and the management absolutely loved. So that was music, right? So I would bring in my guitar and I would teach kids adult songs. I wouldn't teach them the kind of Da, da, da. you know I, I would teach them Jason Mraz and I would teach them Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros and uh, Lady Gaga songs you know and the parents loved that and the kids loved it and that won me a lot of favors a lot of favors yeah so you were so you you felt empowered kind of to use a talent that you had to to teach right the kids um better I guess exactly yeah. that's right that's right and um, yeah, I think I used that to my advantage. But, you know, you could use magic if you're good at card tricks or w- whatever you have that is 
kind of cool or a little bit different. Those are the kind of things that um, the parents will latch on to and notice. New teachers especially expect and need the correct material in the right amount to properly facilitate learning outcomes. What would you do if you were only given a fraction of the material needed to teach your lessons? What if you found out that you were solely responsible for prepping supplemental material before each class? Sadly, this happens at many schools when teaching online and in the classroom. Thomas nicely articulates the stress and irritation this can cause. Could you expand on some of the problems that you saw, maybe in your classroom, obviously, but maybe just as a whole in the school from using approach? So I find that a lot of the, the, one of my biggest problems with the material was they wanted you to fill up an hour, an hour and a half with the thinnest book imaginable. Um, do like today you're on page five and parts A and B. And it's like, it's like a five minute or 15 minute lesson at, at best. And the rest of the time you're, you're fumbling to try to figure out what to do. And if you're not, if you're not adept at creating lesson plans or organizing your time wisely, and I am terrible at both. Um, my wife would be is awesome at both. I am terrible at both. If you're not adept at those things, you're going to be you're going to be looking racing to to Google up worksheets and and random shit on the internet. That's probably not going to be of any use to the kids or in in the long long term sense of the the plan that you're using. It's 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 a really and they, and it's just like just these and they but and the thing is the 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 admin or the the people above you don't want you to go through the book too quickly because then they don't have a reason to bill the parents so it's it's just the thin Nate the how thin the material is how it's how it's so lacking in anything rich rich or with zero context to apply you can't apply it in any context you can't. It's not, you're not giving good examples to work with. Um, and, and maybe, maybe it is your job to come in and, and create a, a really nice lesson plan, but that's not something they tell you when they hire you. They give you the book and go teach parts A and B and they never go, we expect you to do X, Y, and Z. And there are teachers that I have seen who have uh, been to their, to the credit of the ESL teaching community. Some of you out there are awesome at this. Some of you know, like you, you come in and at first you're working with it and you go, oh my God, what am I going to do? And then you adapt. And the next thing you know, you're making your own lesson plans and you're, you're figuring out ways to um, stretch that content out and, uh, and fit it into an hour time slot and to make it fun and interesting and engaging. There are a few of people out there that are really good at doing that. And I, my hat's off to them for doing that. But for most everyone else, especially Joe Blow, just can't wait to get his drink on at the end of the night. That is not what they signed up for, and that is not what they want to be doing with their time. And I don't blame them for that, but I wish they would take more ownership of that and more responsibility of that because the they the admin is not going to acknowledge these problems ever. The owners are not going to acknowledge these problems ever. The coworkers the, and the local teachers are not going to acknowledge these problems. So the curriculum is going to stand as this very thin a uh, stringy sort of uh, threadbare sort of uh, thing that you have to try to, to work with. And the best you're going to be able to do maybe at most is play some hangman and bingo for 45 minutes. And that is where it really gets really awful and sort of depressing. That's where it really became depressing to me is just feeling like, what are we even doing here? Why? And not being able to find anything else in the curriculum to help supplement that really basic 
plan that they want you to follow. Supplemental materials, go find them yourself. Like you didn't think to create supplemental materials. Um, any kind of games that work within the context of what you're trying to do, nothing on hand to do that with. Um, reading material, no. If it's not in the book, if it's not a passage in the book that you're teaching from, forget about books that the kids can read together or something like that, read alouds and whatnot. So my biggest criticism of any of these systems is they're generally lacking in appropriate content for a given lesson or an appropriate amount of content for a given lesson. Complacency runs rampant in the ESL industry. And from personal experience, it's important to be aware of the effects that this can have on your life should you decide to teach. You don't want to wake up one day after teaching for many years only to find out that you have very few transferable skills. Make sure you're continually learning and developing personally to avoid this trap. In this next clip, John does a fantastic job of outlining how complacency can affect your life. I'd like to just read a quick quote that I found online that I felt really, or that I feel really describes kind of um, what we're trying to get across during our conversation today. The quote goes like this, we all get complacent, especially when it comes to a job. How much does that speak to the ESL industry as a whole? Yeah, I mean, um, as you and I both have mentioned here, there's a, there's a, especially in Taiwan specifically, there's a lot of comfort in this industry and in these roles. Um, the money is good. The schedule can be very flexible. It can be a low-pressure thing. And so a lot of people have found that they enjoy that work enough, let's say. And, you know, before you know it, it is easy to end up being in Asia for two or three years and then not think about it. You know, like the, the running joke when I got here and I still hear it from people is like lots of people land here and they're like, Oh, I'm going to teach for a year and then go home. And it's like 80% <laughs> of those people don't go home after a year. Right. And, uh, but, but I think what you're getting at is when you get beyond that two or three years, I think, mm. you know, when you hit that two or three years is kind of like the first threshold for me. A lot of people, I would say like 18 months to, to year three of teaching, if it's, if it's not for them, they're starting to realize it at that point. Like they're starting to have, you know, kind of uh, the pain points of, of going to work. It's just not for them. It's not fulfilling, you know, whatever it is. They're not cut out to be a teacher. It's just something they're doing, you know, at this stage of their life. But in, in the market in Taiwan, another reason that people can become complacent in their job is because it's very hard to find other jobs if you don't if you're not a native, right? Foreigners get paid a lot more in Taiwan. Uh, it's problematic. Well, it's, it's challenging for some companies to manage the visa requirements to hire foreigners. And so it's not like you can just, it's not like you're back home, wherever back home is. If, if you're doing, let's say a labor job, but you have a college degree in something, you can start to apply for jobs in your profession. But in Taiwan, it's very hard to find companies that are looking for people doing any number of, of, of professions or, or, or roles. And so it happens in Taiwan that more people end up teaching into that five, six, seven, ten 10-year range. And, you know, at that point, it's really hard to make the change. Your life is established. Your lifestyle is established. You're older than you were if you started in your early to mid-20s, which is challenging to change things as we get older. And 
also, sadly, the resume doesn't show much, right? If you haven't been working on side projects or doing something else, then your resume shows that you've been an ESL teacher, which there's nothing wrong with that work, but using that to try to springboard into another industry or career is, is pretty tough. And, you know, staying within the industry, I've only heard tell of this. I didn't have exposure or need to experience it, but, you know, even long-term teachers feel that there's a ceiling about how much money you can make. And then there's maybe an option to go to, to go to management, but management might make less money and be more high stress and things like this. And, you know, then you start to get into things where people feel stressed out about cultural differences, right? There's, there's not a chance for them to, to rise higher in the school. There's not a career development program where they can add skills most of the time. And then, yeah, I mean, in Taiwan, we definitely see it. In Thailand, we saw a lot of it. We just end up meeting a lot of disgruntled people or, or people whose lives have become, you know, uh, jaded and kind of static. And, and they don't, because of the, it's kind of like a, a um, you know, like, a, like a, it's a negative cycle. They're, they're frustrated in their job. But if they've tried to get out and they can't, then they begin to see that as an impossible option. And then it feeds back into other things. If those people are social drinkers, you will often meet them at the bar. And, and you know, that becomes a really frustrating situation. And, and in Taiwan, I think there's something of an industry problem with that. But, you know, there's layers to the conversation about how to try to possibly correct for that or, or or create more opportunities. If you enjoyed learning more about the potential stressors you may face after beginning your ESL career, I'd like to invite you back for part three of season one. It will premiere on March 16th, and I'll be talking to a recruiter and two school owners about how you can best prepare yourself for the job that you want. Those exploring the ESL job market won't want to miss the opportunity to learn valuable resume tips and also how to prepare for an interview. And if you're teaching now, perhaps your current resume needs a facelift. Looking forward to having you back for part three, Resume and Interview Tips and Tricks.